Hello, Two Principles podcast listeners. We are so grateful for all the support and appreciate you checking in with us wherever you listen to your podcast. We would love for you to follow, subscribe, and rate review our podcast. You can also follow us on all of our social media accounts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube at Two Principles. Check us out on the web at twoprinciples.com. We are so grateful for our Two Principles podcast partners, HealthWise Behavioral Health and Wellness. As a team of experienced licensed psychologists, clinical therapists, medical professionals, and mind-body practitioners, HealthWise offers a wide range of mental health services for individuals of all ages. HealthWise is grounded in a philosophy that considers the whole person. We are excited to record our Two Principles podcast from the beautiful HealthWise Yoga and Wellness Studio located right here in Maple Grove, Minnesota. We want to thank Greenboy Brand for helping us design our Two Principles artwork and logo. They can help you customize your brand. If you're looking for an artwork design or logo or some cool merchandise, check them out at greenboybrand.com. They have done work for schools, businesses, sports organizations, and everything in between. When you go with Greenboy, you're choosing to get a personal touch rather than a cookie-cutter look. Welcome to the Two Principles Podcast, where we help you get out of your head and into your heart. The Two Principles Podcast, life and leadership talk inside and out. A better you makes for a better today. It starts with you. I'm Michael Takach, and I'm hanging out with the Two Principles. All right, awesome. Hey, man. hey Michael, are you, you are, are you a coffee drinker? Yes. Yeah? Yes. How many cups of coffee do you have per day? I usually go four to six. Four to six? <laughs> Well, no, I'm not I saying that's it. not a bad I thing. I space it's, it out throughout the day. Oh, you're an all day. <laughs> Up until about three. Three is my cutoff. Okay. Off. All right. Oh, that's do, hardcore. Do you like? Do you make your own coffee? Do you go pick it up somewhere? What's your What's your go to on that? I typically make it. Yeah. yeah. I got a. I got one of those coffee makers that have a grinder. Oh, and yeah. And so it, it, mm. it grinds it as it makes it, and yeah. Oh. And I usually do half calf if that helps. Yes. Okay. And so. so that's where you get the five to six cups. Right, and I'm not jumping off the walls. <laughs> good. Well, that's awesome. Uh, hey, Kev, are we uh, good on your end there, buddy? We are ready to go. All right. Hey, let's go spread some good out into the podcast universe. It's that time. Hello and welcome to today's show. As always, super excited to be here today with my good friend, Kevin, and we are fired up to have Dr. Michael Takach in the studio today. I'm Jason Paris. I'm Kevin Jost. And we are the Two Principles, the Two Principles podcast, where we put the focus on leadership, work-life balance, stress reduction, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks for tuning in today as we continue to walk this journey together one step at a time, one conversation at a time. Hey, as always, every episode, we will stay true to the Two Principles purpose. We will consider the impact of our words and actions. We will be in the moment. We will be present. We will give it our best today. And of course, we are always going to try to have a little bit of fun. We are going to have some fun because Michael, as we found out, he's been on all sorts of podcasts. So yeah. we... Pressure's on. Yeah, does. I know. Like <laughs> we're newbies. He's like a vet. So it's going to be good. Hey, mailbag, we are going to have fun. But the, the mailbag question, Kevin, that came in is, um, how do you get your guests on the show? That was what came in this week to me. And I, I it's a great, great question. Yeah. I'll let you answer it. I make you do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, really, it's it's. Uh, I would say it's been a very organic um, process. Um, really, just networking. Um, 
past guests that we have, we always ask them, Hey, who do you, who do you know that you think might be interesting in this space? And, um, we've been really fortunate, um, because we've gotten a lot of great recommendations and it's just been, like I said, kind of an organic process. Yeah. And I would say too, it's been great too, because obviously we're grateful for the space we get to use here at Healthwise yep. uh, Yoga and, and Wellness Studio here. And Kristen Dahl, the owner has, um, you know, she'll give us some, you know, folks, hey, you should check in with this person and that person and all that good stuff. Hey, Michael, do you have any questions for us before we before we get started here? Anything you want to know about the two principles? <laughs> <laughs> Way to throw it out there. So no, um, you know, this, your, your podcast, we were talking a little bit, it just started, the original plan was to start in January, get your first episode out by June. Yeah. <laughs> What's your new quota for June that you're aiming for? Oh, geez. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, because at first, I mean, we really, we had no idea what we were doing and we didn't, weren't thinking about Do we still you know, have really much? Do well, we know no, we're we doing? don't. We don't. <laughs> but we weren't, we weren't like aware of, you know, and thinking about like statistics, like how many people are, you know, listening and that. And so as we've gone through this process, now we've, now we've got like kind of hard numbers where we're like, oh, let's, let's see if we can reach, you know, X number of downloads in seven days. Yep. And then when that happens, well, that just motivates us. We're like, oh, let's see if we can get, you know, more the next, the next time. So, um, so I guess, you know, by by June, we will have, you know, at that point, probably produced, I don't know. 15, 16? Yeah, I was going to say maybe close to, yeah, probably closer to 20, maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe 16. 18. I'm not doing my math. Yeah, correct. I don't know. You're Something probably like that. right. <laughs> um, which is obviously a far cry from where we were in January, thinking, oh, let's try to get the first one done in June. But um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I would say, too, the the cool thing about uh, this is we were part of the Minnesota Association of Secondary School Principals, as we were two principals. And so, um, we've been asked to uh, bring our podcast up to the summer conference. Nice. And so we're going to be doing some interviews up there with the, uh, uh, speakers and stuff like that. So we're excited about that and we're just going to have fun with it. And hopefully again, like we said, just spread some good out in the world and hopefully, uh, people will pay attention and listen. And I would say too, going back to the guests on the show, if you are interested or, ever, you know, if you have a question for us at all, please email us because uh, Kevin and I are, you know, checking the email and that's twoprinciplespodcast at gmail.com and give us a, give us a shout. We'll, we'll respond. Yeah. And plus we also have the idea, we think it would be really cool to maybe uh, just Jason and myself, um, you know, host an episode where we just answer questions that, that listeners have, kind of a and a type thing. So... Hey, let's uh, let's formally introduce uh, let's do it this guy in studio here. Let's do it. We are absolutely excited to have Dr. Michael Takach on the show today. Michael utilizes a psychodynamic approach to therapy that places value on exploring the ways our symptoms and experiences can be understood and addressed to help better understand ourselves on our journey towards health, wellness, and self-empowerment. Dr. Takach engages in mindful discussions to help identify patterns, emotions, and thoughts that may lead to a better self-understanding and greater self-compassion. As always, it is great to learn from other leaders in the field of mental health and wellness. So we want to extend a uh, welcome to Michael today for taking time out of his busy schedule to be on the Two Principles Show. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. And one of the things we found out too, as uh, Michael came in today, he's got some other experiences, not only being part of yeah. the whole mental health community. So we're going to learn a little bit about that too. But Michael, it's time for the random question of the show and last episode's question. <clears throat> so we'll just quickly go over this one. But so 
Would you rather go whitewater rafting or hang gliding if you had to pick between the two? Oh, so I would say hang gliding, but I'm going to go with what is what my initial thought would be. But recently I was out hiking over at uh, Horseshoe Bend out in Arizona. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those that I'm, I'm not that afraid of heights or whatnot. You get close to the edge, though, and all of a sudden, like, your hands get all sweaty and, like, that kicks in. And you'd like to think that you're really good with heights, but hang gliding, I think, is just maybe a step too far. Like, in theory, I think I'd love it. But just to be suspended in the air like yeah. that? No, throw me on the river. Wait, wait, wait. Awesome. <laughs> there, so... we go. there we go. Well, this episode's question of the show. What household chore do you dislike the most? Dishes. Damn. <laughs> I mean, that was like, easy. That was like, that I was didn't easy. even have to think. think. <laughs> no, wow. Just, That's fair. I love to cook. I just don't like the dishes afterwards. Okay. Is, it, is it the dishes like... By hand, or you mean dishwasher, loading dishwasher? Like, what is it? Just all you know, of it. All it's of it. all of it. All you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, you know, it's like I get done eating and you just want to be, yeah. you just want to be done. Yeah. You're just like, okay, yeah. I want to relax and yeah. digest and go paper relax. plates. There's your solution. Right. <laughs> so. Throw in the trash. Kevin, what about you? What's uh, your. I would say uh, cleaning the floor. Like, we, we don't have any carpet on our main level and, and uh, we have dogs. Oh. So it's a mess all the time. And so I would say, you know, <clears throat> Mopping and and cleaning the floor and yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, getting uh, yeah. I I would say for me a dusting. I just trying to mm. making sure you get everything dusted and all that stuff. So, but here I found this uh, when I was this week scrolling around. This came out of USA Today under the reviewed section. These are the five most hated chores in America. Washing dishes is number one. There we go. There you go. You I'm not alone. There you're not <laughs> alone. Um, doing the laundry is number two. Cleaning the bathroom is number three. Sweeping or vacuuming number four. Cooking and grocery shopping number five. Oh, huh. I love grocery shopping. Oh, I do too. Same. I love getting in there. So sometimes my wife won't let me go because she'll come home. What you bought all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So awesome. Well, thank you for participating in the random question of the show. Love it. Let's go. Let's get into some questions. Uh, Michael, why don't you just go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, you know, like where'd you grow up? Um, How'd you get into your current position? I know one of the things Jason was talking about that we just learned is that you're the CEO of uh, Affinity Empowering. Tell us a little bit about that. Becoming a licensed psychologist. Kind of give us the, the the whole gamut. So I was born. No, <laughs> no actually, uh, the, the part of the story of how I got into psychology starts when, when I was a kid. And I grew up in uh, Columbia Heights, northeast Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Started off there. And in the neighborhood, there was somebody going around setting off fires. So, you know, like the warming shack at the ice rink burned mm-hmm. down and all that. And I was reading Sherlock Holmes at the time. And so... Like third grade, I get this idea, like, I'm going to solve this. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and so, Party you know, boys. Right. So I'm going, I'm <laughs> digging through all the, you know, the burnt up rubble and all this other stuff, looking for clues. And um, it, it got me fascinated in the idea that you could tell about somebody by the behaviors that they they do, that they engage in. The idea of trying to put together these clues and, and whatnot, and understanding the world around us and other people and whatnot. It was just a fascinating idea. Um and from there, it, it, it kind of like course was set. It was like, okay, I want to be in psychology. This is just, it's fascinating. And so I started off, um, originally the plan was to run 
private practice. So I'm like, okay, I got, I got to learn business and whatnot. So went into banking for a little bit while I was going through school and uh, came into, uh, finally got around to going through grad school, getting back onto doing clinical work, jumping into clinical work. I was at uh, a lot of short-term residential crisis places, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, volunteering there and moving around just clinically. And then through there, uh, getting into the, the clinical work as a licensed psychologist, I, I was just initially drawn to a lot of high acuity places and mm. doing like neuropsychology and whatnot, because it, it felt like there was just this and uh, community mental health and whatnot, that there was so much going on with, with people that in, in that they were just trying to make sense of how did I get here? Mm-hmm. What happened? What were the patterns? Why do I keep doing things that I'm not aware of? And that's really where this love of psychodynamic came in and looking at these underlying processes and these ideas and, and whatnot. And so I started thinking about, like, how do you back it up a little bit? And so from there, I went to colleges. So I was at Mankato State University for a while on staff there and mm-hmm. um, was over in Western Carolina University in their college counseling center working with college students and volunteered at uh, Forest Lake Elementary School for a bit and kind of moved around and looked at, like, how could you try to find mental health upstream a little bit further mm-hmm. and find those those markers? and. How do you help prevent it from when we get taken off by our, our patterns? And along the along the journey there, I ended up taking a slight detour and I went to Hazelton Betty Ford. And mm. I was there on their as their clinical staff um, and loved working with clients and patients. And it was just a wonderful experience, but then went into higher ed teaching there. And so I was at their Hazelton Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies, taught there for a while. And I started realizing that in the clinical field, one of the ways that we started looking at mental health needed to shift a bit because we were chasing symptoms. So like if we think about mental health in terms of depression and anxiety and whatnot, we start chasing this idea of once the symptom is expressed, some people are saying, okay, that's what I need to do. I need to stop my feeling of sadness. I need to stop my feeling of anxiety without looking at the larger context. Like what's causing that? What's the patterns? What's everything Mm -hmm. else that's leading towards this so that we get at the root cause of it rather than just chasing the symptom. And through that, it, 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 it dawned on me that we needed to start looking at it as clinicians a little bit differently. So I got fascinated with the idea of how clinicians are a different factor in the whole therapeutic process. So my experiences as a person influence how then I treat patients and patients, mm. you know, and, and whatnot. And this is a term that we talk about in psychodynamic called transference, counter-transference. And mm-hmm. we don't often spend enough time really focusing on this as a, as a much larger field. Um Long story short, because <laughs> I, I might as well have started, this is when I was born, and let's yeah. go from there. Um, it, it led me to move in uh, with Hazleton to start working also not only at their grad school, but then with recovery management. So after patients discharge and go back in their day-to-day life. And through there, also um, then moved over to Affinity Empowering. And our, our goal there and what I started working on there was really looking at how do you get good mental health education out there for people and tools so people can start driving and, and understanding both themselves and family members and then find those early interventions, yeah. get good education, 
find quality resources so you're not just Googling it and finding out like, hey, this is, you know, sure. the most escalated. The Google outcome. doctor. Right, exactly. <laughs> that, you know, and, and it's interesting because you get into this and you learn like with WebMD where, you know, in places like that where it, you, you, you Google it and you try to say, okay, what's this symptom? And it always goes to the most extreme is a liability thing because you don't want anybody to read this and not take it seriously and go yeah. in. But what it does is it, it, it makes it hard to know where do I fall on this and what does it actually mean for me? And when you think about mental health, it can create this tendency for people either to jump to, okay, I've got this, 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 and this because I've, I've read this, or it's not at that extreme so I don't have it so I don't have to worry about it and it's fine and I guess I should just get over it. It doesn't validate the person. And so with what we're doing with the healthcare technology uh, at Affinity Empowering is really trying to find that middle ground, that gray area of saying, how do we normalize some of this? How do we make it? You understand the full context of the physical and the mental health part of it and then look at what's causing those symptom expressions and what the symptoms are actually trying to accomplish. I love it. Hmm. That's yeah. interesting. That's what are very, those symptoms yeah. trying to accomplish? I've never heard that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this idea that we can look at this in terms of when somebody gets sick and the body spikes a fever. We, we chase the fever. We say, oh, we've got to, we got to bring the fever down. And yes, if it's, out of, if it's out of alignment, if it's too high, you want to bring that down because that's dangerous. But there are times where we don't stop and think, like, what's the fever trying to do? Well, it's trying to rid the body of an infection. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an actual response mm -hmm. that's trying to protect itself. And a lot of times depression, anxiety, to a certain extent, a lot of these symptoms are actually trying to accomplish something that's supposed to be protective. Now, it may be like that fever, it's gone too far yeah, and it's causing issues. But when you think about almost all symptoms, there is some type of thing that it's trying to accomplish. So, for instance, if we break down our physical response, we have an instinctual response to a lot of situations to either have flight, fight, freeze, or to seek control. It's kind of our four instincts that most of us have in an adrenaline-filled chaotic situation. Now... That's deep inside of us. We just have that natural reaction. So when we start thinking about anxiety, what is that? Well, it's us trying to create a flight plan to get away from there. We're trying to envision all of these different potential outcomes. We're trying to say, what are all of these wide variety of outcomes that could potentially happen that will lead to this negative thing that I don't want to happen? And how do I account for all of those variables? It's creativity kind of turned backwards. Yeah. So rather than saying I'm starting here and I'm looking at all the different possible great outcomes, I'm starting at, I'm looking at all the bad things in the world and how this ends up pointed at me. Yeah. And so it's trying to protect us by giving us the opportunity to be thinking ahead and avoiding those outcomes. Now, if we don't control it and we don't use it and we don't think about it in the right way, it overtakes us. Mm-hmm. And then we become to the point where it goes back to like paralyzing fear or anxiety and we avoid things. And so if we go back to like now talking about like the freeze response, instinctively, it's like when you get lost in the woods, you stay put, you wait for the people around you to notice and to come help. So we have an instinctual built in part that when we're overwhelmed, part of us says, if we just stay put, other people are going to notice. And we sometimes cue people, which is crying, 
it, it think about that. Like when mm. somebody starts crying, if you know them or not, you're gonna yeah. you're, you're kind of like curiosity mm-hmm. looking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you okay, you okay, yeah. And and it draws that attention. And what it's a lot of times with depression is that when people stop moving, there's a belief internally at a deep subconscious level, and we'll talk about the subconscious later because that's a debate if that's there or not. <laughs> that there's okay. some um, <clears throat> that if I wait long enough, help will come, or the threat will leave. And so, with all I need to do is I need to hunker down, need to wait it out, and in the meantime. You're probably going to crave fats, sugars, and carbs because it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's the stuff you store, and then yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's trying to be adaptive. It's trying to say, "How do I avoid this threat?" And it's thinking other people will then respond and and help out. And so, with this this approach, you know, you start looking at these symptoms, and rather than saying, "Okay." they're they're horrible you can start saying okay well what are they actually trying to tell us that you're trying to accomplish what is it trying to do how do you listen to that almost engage with it have a conversation and say okay through this i can start figuring out next steps like with anxiety we get worried about things that we value so anxiety actually communicates value to us now, we then get to ask ourselves, is it something I truly value or I feel like I should value? And you can start having that deeper conversation, but you follow the symptom rather than just immediately, we got to get rid of give, it. Give me an example of that. Like, like I love that, that you say you're, I mean, again, it makes sense. You're anxious about something that you value. Um, to me, that makes sense. If there's something mm-hmm. going on in the world that I don't care about, why would I be anxious about it? Right. Is that what you're saying, essentially? Exactly. So Ooh. we go to, we, we think of this thing that, we, we miss the idea that indifference is really when you're detached from something. Exactly what you're saying. If it's happening, I don't care about it. It's, you know, you're, you're not going to pay attention to it. It's not going to cause anxiety. But the moment that you're invested in it and you want a specific outcome, or you're afraid of it. So we can go through things like public speaking. Yeah. Okay, so it's a very common thing people have anxiety about. And so at the core of it, we can say, well, I just don't want to be anxious going up there and talking in front of people. And we can go ahead and say, okay, let's think of different strategies to to manage that and whatnot. But what you're getting, you're kind of missing when you stop it there is going at a deeper level. Okay, so then what is it that I'm really anxious about? Is it I'm anxious about, I want to be seen as somebody has something important to say. I want to be seen as a member of the community. I want to be seen as somebody that can be calm in, in situations where that other people find pressure. Like everybody has a different objective that they're going after. But when you just try to avoid the anxiety instead of listening to it, you're not finding what you value. And so you could find out that maybe it is I'm talking to a bunch of people and giving a public speech or I'm, you know, I'm speaking in front of coworkers and I, I don't really care about the topic, but I care that they value my opinion. Mm-hmm. So what I value is actually feeling connected to my coworkers and feeling like I'm contributing in a different way. And now this is putting a spotlight on it. And so we can pursue other things like how else can I feel connected to my coworkers or feel like I'm making a contribution that overall helps drive that level of anxiety down, which is just a symptom letting you know what you value. <laughs> I've never heard it explained that way. What a great way to kind of flip it on its head and almost create some something positive 
out of it. I'm thinking for young people, right? Like, well, and I, like, yeah, and I would say too, it's just what what Michael was saying too. It's like we're we always chasing the symptom, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we let's start peeling. Let's start peeling a little bit. You mentioned I've I've heard you know fight flight freeze. Yep. I've never heard control. I've never heard that. Have you, Jason? Not in that way. No. No. Explain that to me. What's okay. that fourth piece? So. The way, this comes from this idea called the stress, stress diathesis model, which is basically when we're in a stressful situation, our body responds physiologically towards it, uh, cortisol and other things that will rise and we have a threshold level that once we pass it, we kick into that instinctual response, which is that fight, flight, or freeze. Now, I throw control in there because when we start thinking about stress, everybody has different definitions of what stress is. And, you know, it could be, oh, I'm so stressed about this or whatnot. To get a common definition of stress, I always define it as something is changing and either we are, it, it, it wants, we want it to change, it needs to change, it's changing and we don't feel like we have control over it. And over the, the underlying crux of all of this is this idea of control. If it's changing, like I'm lifting this up and I want it yeah. to, that's not causing me stress because... It's doing what I want. I feel in control. I feel mastery over the situation. And in control, we want to get rid of the, like the negative connotations about it. It could be like control, like moving a pencil or whatnot. But we feel we have agency in the situation. And so when we feel stressed out and we have those instinctual responses to either leave, to fight, or um, to just freeze, the, the other thing that tends to happen is we either do that or we try to take control of the situation. When we have a sense of control and mastery over the situation, our stress levels also go down. Mm-hmm. This is unfortunately why there's one of the easier ways to look at it is the, ch- the, the chain of yelling. Mm-hmm. When somebody gets feeling like they're under attack and they can go ahead and divert it, now I've controlled the stressor. It's no longer focused on me. It's focused on somebody else. We know physiologically what that does is for that person who redirected it, they gain a sense of control and mastery over the situation. Their stress level goes down because they deflected and moved it off. Now, is socially, is that the best way to handle it? No. But physiologically, people get that reinforcement because now I've gained control over the situation. Oh, my gosh. Jason, you might as well leave because I feel like, <laughs> again, once again, I'm in my personal therapy session. Well, no, I know. and. <clears throat> When I get to the, you get to that point of control, I see that so much. And I can even see that within myself sometimes. Absolutely. It's like you want to, you start to move to something to start controlling it because you want to start feeling better. And that's how you feel better. But you have to be aware of how you're doing it. Are you doing it in a, in a way that's going to help you? Or are you going to do it in a way that's starting to dis- destruct and go down a bad path? So. Absolutely. And that's the thing is, is that we tend to seek out control in some matter. And it's either directly at what we're stressed out about, we, we uh, approach the situation head on, or we go for proxy events or things that we can take control over. And when we start thinking about coping skills, so, you know, we're saying, okay, you're stressed out, you're anxious, use some coping skills. Quick disclaimer about coping skills. What they do is they help us feel better in the moment. They help us relax our stress response so that we can get below that threshold where we're not immediately in that fight or flight or freeze. It doesn't get rid of the underlying issue. So if somebody is struggling to pay rent and they're looking at being evicted, 
deep breathing isn't going to change that. <laughs> right. it, yeah. Yeah. it might help them get to a place where they can respond to the situation, but it's not going to get rid of the underlying issue. And so it's helpful to recognize what coping skills do. They give us that temporary uh, response because I've worked with patients before and they're like, oh, I'm using coping skills, but you know, I'm still feeling stressed here and there. And it's like, yes, we have to kind of peel the onion back and get yeah. back to the underlying cause. So when we start thinking about coping skills, most of them mimic fight, flight, freeze, or control. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you think about exercise. Okay, you're going to go out and you're going you're gonna to run, you're going to jog, you do whatever. Okay, your body feels like it's fleeing the situation. It's going to burn off that cortisol. Your stress levels are going to go down. Temporarily, you're going to feel like, okay, I'm better. You know, and when we go ahead and fight, you know, we argue with somebody, we do that same thing. Our body says, okay, it's like I addressed the situation. I've, I've asserted myself. Um, hopefully it's healthy asserting, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but stress levels will go down. But then we look at other things like video games or, you know, somebody playing on their phone or whatnot, what, or, or drawing or art or anything like that. Any of those situations, you are taking control over a small environment. Whether it's a game, it's an avatar that you're, you know, going around and doing. If it's a card game, you're controlling the environment that you're in, the rules, the situation, the stressor that you have. It's what, part of the reason, like, we like scary movies and stuff like that is because we can step away from it. We can control <laughs> it and learn from it and learn to kind of manage and build resilience and everything else from it. But that sense of control is underlying that that helps bring that stress down. When we feel like we've regained a sense of control or mastery, our stress levels naturally decrease and we feel more confident in the situation. Now, this can go in a very negative way where we start becoming very over-controlling. We start becoming hypervigilant about diets or anything like that that cause stress. And instead of then relieving it, we start adding to it. Because like anything, if we tip that balance too far... Mm-hmm it's no longer helping. It becomes problematic. Yep, totally. And we're going to probably talk a little bit more about that Jeez. in a little bit. But I think we just asked him to introduce himself and we just, <laughs> <laughs> but I was, just went down a was, huge rabbit hole. That right, was great. And, and Michael, what I'd say to you is what, what's coming to me is just A, your passion, right? You have a, a lot of passion about what you're doing and I love it and I can feel it and I can feel the energy. And um, But also, just as you grew up, you, you just the curiosity that yes. you've had and where to get. So I absolutely love that. We're going to, kind of switch gears to get to know you. We, we talk a lot about on the show, uh, like routines and how, how routines can be really good for people. And so we always like to ask our guests, what, what does your typical morning uh, routine look like or after work routine look like, or maybe a typical weekend? Yeah. So I, I tend to be a morning, like morning routine person. And there's the ideal, and then there's sure. <laughs> the actual. And so on, on my ideal morning, what I like to do is I like to get up about five, have some coffee. I've got dogs, so the dogs always have to go up first, and that's kind of like the, the little walk there. But then I try to get in about a half hour of cardio and just really start the day off with that. And then I always sit down and, and drink coffee for mm-hmm. a while. We talked earlier, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> Four or five, well, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the day. But I, I find mm. having that time after exercising and before starting the work day to just reflect, to, to not have any pressures, phone away, you know, uh, my wife, but, you know, the conversation, something to connect, spend some time with the dogs, just really to do that helps center me and focus me. Otherwise, you just get swept up in the day. You don't really have a good, mm, solid yeah. base for it. And then it's just run, run, run. Um, 
kick off. Usually start work around eight or so with, uh, and then around midday, try to get in another, uh, get in a lift. Um, so doing some weightlifting and whatnot. And then end of the day as a transition point, try to go for another short walk if possible mm -hmm. to get outside, uh, when Minnesota weather <laughs> cooperates <Yeah. laughs> and whatnot. Um, and then I, I've been typically in my, my clinical practice seeing clients at night and then nights that I don't have, um, uh, client clients, then it's just, it's reading, relaxing, watching TV, movies, stuff like that. I'm a big believer in the power of art. So like mm. any type of creative thing. And you talked about passion. Mm -hmm. When I see people that are passionate about things that they're creating, whether it's shows or movies or books that they're writing, like that gets me sucked in. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that that's my typical routine. Awesome. I that's love good. it. And we're going to talk well, probably a little bit later, maybe even to this next question here, Kevin, that you're going to ask, but just about that, that creative side of therapy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I'm still processing <laughs> your, your first answer to my question, all this stuff. <laughs> great, great stuff. Um, talk to us about the unique impact of our emotions, patterns, and thoughts and the correlation it has on the mind and the body. Um, you know, psychodynamic and inter integrative practices. Um, just talk to a little bit about that. So the way to start about this is with psychodynamic there is an understanding of the subconscious. And when we start talking about Freud and Jung <laughs> and everybody else, like the idea of the subconscious can go anywhere from like you've got this whole separate being within you that's talking and kind of creating decisions and all that to more kind of more current neuropsychodynamic interpretations of it, which look at the way that we use shortcuts within our brain to make decisions. So, for instance, when I walked in here, um, I, I, I was going to say I've never been in this room before, but I have. So <laughs> I'm going to try to stay honest. <laughs> but if I walk into a new room yeah. and there's a, there's a chair there, I'm not taking time to think, what is that? Is that an animal? Is that food? Is that a threat? Is that, you know, treasure? Like, what is it? Like, I have an exemplar, an idea of what, a template of what, a chair is. Sure. So my brain can skip over assessing that. It uses these shortcuts and it happens in a microsecond. I'm not even usually aware of it happening. I, with, with our brain, we have this thing called the reticulating active, uh, activating system, the RAS. And what it does is it allows us to filter out roughly about 80% of all of the perceptual data that we get in so that we can focus on something. Without it, everything would be new novel and like we'd be struggling to, to have any type of focus. So our brain needs to take these shortcuts to know what's important and what's not. And how we learn that is through our patterns, behaviors, and emotions. And so everything that we experience, we encode with the experience of it plus an emotion. And so this is like when we start even talking about language, ideographic language, we all have our own unique definitions of words. We might not realize it, but we do. So I have dogs. So for me, the word dog has different connotation than to somebody that has been either attacked by a dog or has a phobia of dogs sure. or are scared of dogs. And what happens is their association of memories, experiences, and emotions then get packaged in with that exemplar of dog. The same way that mine get packaged in with the exemplar of dogs of how I, you know, I love yeah. my dogs. Yeah. And so 
when I see my dogs, emotionally I have an immediate response. It's that microsecond. It, it just happens. I don't think about it and I move on to the next thing or, you know, I interact with my dog and everything else stops and, you know, that becomes my focus. We are all influenced by these shortcuts that our brains take to determine where should we focus, what's important and what has, has meanings and salience in our life. So that part we consider either subconscious because it's our below our level of consciousness or unconscious because we're not aware that we're doing it. And so when we start thinking about our patterns of life, of what it means towards health, you know, we can talk about physical health, mm-hmm. you know, things like weightlifting or exercise or sports or whatnot, you know, we, we can think about it for us, what our experience was, and that's going to all of a sudden elicit all of these memories that we might not even be fully processing. They're just happening in a microsecond because it's all tied together with that term sports, if we talk about football for a moment, Mm -hmm. Vikings fan, and (laughs) I can say... (laughs) There's a lot of emotion here. A lot of emotion, (laughs) a lot of history. And so what it does is like it immediately, like I think about football and I think about Vikings and I can think about like all those experiences. And for me, when I start talking about the NFL and I start talking about Vikings, like that's going to have different connotations for me than say one of my coworkers who's a big Eagles fan. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're both approaching this the same way. But then when I think about like watching a game, lately we've been phenomenal. But historically, it th- there's not the same type of, you know, excitement or trepidation and whatnot. This past season was phenomenal and there was a lot of excitement. These things are then like my subconscious responses that are immediately driving, like how do I value rank watching the game? Mm-hmm. How does it affect the rest of the behavior that I'm doing? Am I moving things around socially so I'm not missing the game because it's exciting? Like all of these things start filling in and it's affecting my moods, my behaviors, and my actions without me always consciously aware of it. And so then we start thinking about like health and wholeness and like, our, you know, willingness to exercise and all that and our willingness to go to bed at a decent time, we might not be aware of all of those things that we've put in that bucket with sleep or exercise or whatnot and how we have emotional responses to it. And so we may be avoiding past hurt or pain or ideas that are associated with it that are just becoming these split-second decisions that we're not even considering or aware of because we're not aware of the spider web of neurological connections that are coming in to our minds whenever we hear a trigger word or a cue or an idea that we're trying to pursue. So how does the average person then take everything that you just said <laughs> and implement some type of practice, some type of awareness? What, what does the average person do? And you want to do it in a simple term, right? Even yeah, yeah. Let's simplify that for me. I'm, 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 just an average person walking through my life, how do I use what you just said in a practical, easy way? <laughs> it's recognizing that we do take these shortcuts. And then this is where mindfulness has been so important to be brought into psychology is that when we do this, we're going kind of on an autopilot. We're saying, okay, that's outside of my area of focus that I need to. I know what's important, so, you know, exercise, exercise, I'll get to that later. You know, uh, diet, I'll start on Monday. Mm -hmm. You know, our immediate 
jump to thoughts are being pushed by that. And what we need to do is we need to be present and mindful in the moment so that we're not just going ahead. And if it is something that's important to us, bring that into the area of focus. So, okay, exercise. What am I resisting? What is it that I want to do? And again, sometimes it's digging in deeper and saying, okay, so then why am I resisting this? What is it that I'm, I'm worried about? Is it because once I start exercising, then there's the expectation from everybody else that I'm going to need to keep doing it. And then if I don't, you know, the shame that goes mm-hmm. along with that. Is it because the moment I start saying I'm exercising, then there's an ideal of what I have to hit and do I believe I can get it or not? And then that digs into all of this stuff. But by slowing it down and just asking myself, especially when I notice patterns, I continue to avoid this. Mm-hmm. I continue not to do this. Then saying, okay, well, then that's the thing I should dig into mm-hmm. and think about be mindful and just non-judgmentally mm-hmm. feel whatever it is that you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Notice what thoughts come to mind, what ideas come to mind. And then from there, break it down and say, okay, so then what can I change based off of that? So if I'm hearing you correctly in, in the most simplest term, be aware of what I'm feeling. Yep. And really just ask myself, why am I, why do I think I'm feeling that way? Like what past experience are connected to this and, and be curious and, and that kind of thing. You just, you just talked about, um, um, non-judgmental. Like yes. kind of, what does it mean to have self-compassion? Very good question. And so when we start thinking about this, it, it actually reminds me of a, there was a, <clears throat> a lesson that I learned going through grad school. And this was about a psychodynamic, um, writer, his name was Jacques Lacan, and he was kind of somebody that liked to shock people. But he threw out this idea, and it was, if you want to be a good clinician, you can't care whether your patients get better or worse. And it was like, wait, what? what? Wait a second. <laughs> and it, he did it for shock value, but then he broke it down. He says, because the moment you start as a clinician caring about if somebody gets better or worse course you're going to clinically care it's not like you yeah. suddenly aren't going to do it right. but the moment that you do that you make it about you i want you to get better i want you to do this and the focus shifts to you as the clinician trying to guide the outcome rather than being present with the person and really thinking about where they are because people will pick up on that they don't want to let you down they're going to go ahead and try to oh he expects me to be better and so i'm going to go ahead and try to be better or she you know is worried that i'm going to get worse so i'm not going to tell her that i'm getting worse and when we stop and we say non-judgmentally, I am just going to be here with you and help you however you need in this moment and not judge whether you're getting better or worse, but just how can we achieve the goal that you have, which is mental health and mental wellness, I can be present. And we need to bring that same level of compassion to ourselves. How do I not say, okay, am I getting better or worse or whatnot, but just pause for a moment and say, where am I really? Not where do I think I should be, not where am I afraid that I'm going, but where am I right now and how do I listen to that and not judge it in terms of, well, it shouldn't be that or it should be this and, oh, you know, you shouldn't have these worries or fears or you should have gotten over that, but just strictly where am I right now? Mm -hmm. That's how you have that self-compassion. And then from there, how do we achieve the goal that we're looking at, which is if I want to go ahead and work out, if I want to heal from that. What does healing then look like? And again, then not getting tied to an outcome, but instead getting tied to that process of healing in the moment at the time. I love it. Wow. And, and I 
you know, as I'm hearing you talk about this, Michael, it goes back to what Kevin and I, when we're talking about this podcast and we talk about how it starts with you, right? And the only way we're going to go on our journey to, if you want to use the word heal or get better or find the better version of yourself is you got to go inward. And what Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say is you got to be aware of your body, be aware of your mind, be aware of your spirit and really just be with it. And it is, there's going to be times when it's going to be uncomfortable and there's going to be times when maybe it feels really good, but that's the piece that I think is so hard for people. And I know for me personally, I've been on my journey with that. And that's one of the reasons that I am excited to be doing this podcast with Kevin because my experience and my journey has gotten me to be where I'm at now. And really what I hope for is that people will start to go inward and start to find find themselves and find the best versions of themselves that they can find joy and love and compassion and all that stuff. But I wish I could say it's really easy. It, it takes time and practice. And encouragement. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that also is really looking at this, when you start thinking about symptoms and, and experiences and you remove it from judgment, should I have it or not? Feelings, emotions are a big one. So I can't tell you the number of times people say, oh, I shouldn't, I, you know, I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't have anger. I shouldn't have you know, this or I shouldn't be sad about this and whatnot. And it's like, all right, let's slow down. Let's think about what emotions are actually accomplishing. So I think about physical sensations as helping me guide my way through physical reality. If, you know, if, I'm, if I have all my senses working and, and whatnot and I have them all available to me, I can see where's a door. I can then navigate through the door. If I miss the door and I hit the wall, I'm going to feel it. It lets me know I need to course correct and whatnot. If there's food, I can taste it. I can smell it to make sure it's good. It's, it's, it's there and I can consume it. My physical senses help me navigate and, and maneuver in physical space. Emotional emotions help us navigate situations and relationships. And so if we stop kind of treating anger or happiness or joy as an emotion that I should pursue or avoid. And instead it's a data point. It's telling me how to navigate. You know, if it's, if it's joy, it's happiness. I'm typically having a peak experience and saying, Hey, it's a reaffirmation that I was going on the right way or something went the right way. If it's anger, it's typically that there has been a violation of an expectation or a boundary and I'm either going ahead and I need some distance or I need somebody to back off. It doesn't mean that that's wrong as a response to have how we then act upon our emotions and what we do with it. And then also when we have emotions about having emotions can complicate that whole process. Mm. But once we slow down and actually listen to what our emotions are telling us, it's giving us data about how there's a part of us that wants to navigate in that situation. Now, I specifically say a part of us because we can always have conflicting emotions. Mm -hmm. There can be times Mm -hmm. where we have multiple different feelings towards a situation And each of those has something valuable to tell us about how we're feeling and what we think about that that situation. But you're right, it's uncomfortable because we have to go ahead and be okay with saying, I'm going to feel what I feel. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and be okay with whatever comes up and thinking about it. And then I'm going to know when I need that support to talk it through or when I need to go ahead and look for other resources to help manage and navigate this situation. And so... It takes work. What do, I was just going to say, what, what about the, the person who gets it wrong? What about the person who um, 
feels the emotion and then acts on the emotion. And maybe the way that they acted on the emotion isn't the most productive. Is that where that self-compassion piece comes into? I mean, what, what if the individual is just continually realizing, wow, I'm, I'm not reacting to my emotions in a positive way. But think about that right there. That's that insight. Somebody mm-hmm. just recognized that pattern. Okay. So if you have that level of, of unawareness and you say, okay, you know what? I did what I did and who cares? Sure. Uh, that, that, that's, that's different than self-compassion because that's saying, okay, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to acknowledge it. And I'm not going to think about this, about how my behaviors are affecting myself and others. And then think about that. What's the effect of that? If, so in your example, that person who's, okay, I'm doing that pattern, I'm doing that pattern. And you're saying, okay, I'm finally realizing it. I'm doing the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Because that's a learning experience. Mm-hmm. You've took the time, you put the energy in, you've actually investigated and thought about what you're doing and what you want to do different and how it's affecting your relationships. And you're saying it's not giving me the outcomes that I want. Okay. Love it. The, what I want to say that's going to take us into the next question too, is that so much of life, we, we want to bombard ourselves, right? Call it numbing. We are mm-hmm. so consumed with external and everything we're doing because we we don't want to get into the internal because like we're talking about here, it's hard. It's difficult to do. And so that's why you, I, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to judge anybody else because I've gone, I mean, I, like I said, I'm going through my own journey right now and I have, and I will continue, but it's really recognizing that when you can recognize all the stuff that you're doing outside, but then bringing it inside to actually feel it, notice it, be with it, sit with it, whatever you want to call it, will get you to do that. And that's going to take me to a topic that kind of one of the big pieces of this show that we, that Kevin and myself have been talking about has been mental health. And mental health has had, or, and we're, we'd like to see it change, and I'm not to say that we're going to change it, but it has such, it can have such a negative connotation. It can have a negative, like, oh, mental health is a bad thing. And we're like, wait a second here. Mental health is part of who you are. It's part of your beingness. It's your, you have physical health, mental health, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is. That's who you are, and it's how you're dealing with it. So I guess the question I have for you, Michael, is what does it mean to you? And then what are some of the current trends that you're seeing with mental health? And I know we've talked a little bit about this, but maybe you can talk about that. And then I want to talk about and I'll get to this, but the stigma of men in therapy. But let's start with yes. let's start with the whole mental health. What does it mean to you? Well, and I, I think this is where we go back to the ideographic language because for so long people talked about mental health as basically a broad term to describe this is when somebody is mentally unwell. Hmm. Well, this is when somebody is having symptoms. This is when somebody's having a diagnosis. It wasn't like this is health and this is mental health. It was specifically, this is kind of when somebody needs to engage with therapy. And so because of that, we're trying to take that word and say, no, 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 it can encompass so much more. But people have those patterns, those shortcuts, that stuff. So they hear that term and they think, well, no, mental health means, you know, I've heard it on the news that somebody had mental health, da, 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 da. And it's been kind of that shortcut to to point to different things rather than looking at larger contextual, and it's got those connotations and those feelings and those emotions to it. So we've got to change our association with the word to actually mean health. 
mm-hmm. where it's much more broad with than just how do I go ahead and address symptoms, but how do I create resilience? How do I create a sense of well-being? How do I create a sense of fulfillment? How do I create a sense of awe and wonder in my life where I feel engaged and happy? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's where mental health is, is it's the pursuit of that. It's not just the absence of symptoms. It's not just when there's symptoms. It's this is the whole lens through which we view life as mental health is psychological. And so if we're not attuning to that and addressing that, we're missing out of a big part of the question of who am I? Right. Powerful. Love it. That is, I love it. And it, it does, it's, that's something that will continue on this journey, our journey to hopefully continue to get the word out and what you're saying here. But let's talk a little bit about two things. One is uh, maybe some of the trends, but I really want to get into the stigma of men working with the therapist. I've been vulnerable on this show and I've said uh, on different episodes, I've spent time in my past um, working with a therapist. And the first couple of times I've said it on the this podcast, it was really hard for me to say, but at the same time, I'm like, wait a second, you're on your journey. I don't, I don't care right now. I don't, because I know what's helped me and I've got to a better place in my life. And it doesn't mean that I was all messed up or anything like that. I started to go inward and started to get back into who I was and start to go through that stuff. And so what, what do you, what do you say to that? I mean, cause I, I know there's men out there listening and maybe they're like, why would I go see a therapist? Does that make me look cause weak, right? So Right. And, you know, when we start thinking about this, we think about where have we traditionally learned how to engage in life. And so this is where we kind of take a, 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 a step back for a moment and we say, okay, how does one actually learn to navigate life and do life well and kind of live a good, fulfilling life and, and whatnot? Where are our role models? Where are our experiences and whatnot? And... We, we think about how historically, culturally, people have learned. And Frederick Nietzsche wrote this, this book, Birth of Tragedy, and he, he started talking about theater. And theater was, especially the tragedy, was artists demonstrating how people that were, quote-unquote, virtuous, responded to tragic situations to give social models or reference points for how somebody would handle tragedies in their own life. It was basically teaching you how to cope with negative experiences. And we've kind of gone through that with theater and movies and everything else. People look to movies, and this this contributes to this idolization of, of, of movie stars and movies and everything else is because we're looking to social reference points. How should I act in these situations? And when we start then thinking about therapy, we have to start thinking about, well, where are people getting models of what therapy looks like? What does it mean to be in therapy? What does it mean to engage and whatnot? And if we've talked about historically that there, especially in the dominant culture, there's been this pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Mm-hmm. You can get through it. You can manage it. You got to be, you know, quote unquote, a real man. And like these, these messages that are out there culturally that people hear and about how men don't engage in therapy and you just got to figure it out it creates this sense of isolation. So then it creates the question, where else do we learn this from? Now, in our communities, if we have a good, strong community and we have other role models and peoples that are mentors and whatnot, 
we would go through a very similar situation. We talk, we go ahead and process. Okay, this is what's going on in my life. What do you, you know, whatnot? And that's not really too far different than therapy. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't have the same stigma about it because mm-hmm. now, again, once we've gone back to that term, mental health, it's been associated with these are people that have X, Y, Z problems, and that's why they're going to therapy. And to then say, I'm going to therapy, we are suddenly worried, well, does that mean somebody's thinking that I've got X, Y, Z problem, and this is this, and I can't manage it on my own, and what does that say about me as a, as a quote, man in this situation, and should I be able to handle this? And it can create all of those feelings of either shame or I've got to hide this, and I, I can't be proud of the fact that I'm just seeking counsel and I'm seeking being able to talk about it. And I'm actually exploring it and saying, who am I and how do I want to engage in life? And, and instead we hold ourselves back from engaging. And there's also this pressure that a lot of people tend to feel that they have to have it all figured out. Right. And this is just exponentially increasing when you start seeing social media and everything else that's out there where people present, this is the best thing that happened to me. This is, you know, I got the promotion. I've Mm -hmm. got, you know, the family vacation. I've got the, you know, whatever. And what it can do is it can create this sense of they've got it all figured out and I don't. So, again, I'm not part of the group. I'm separate on my own and I'm I'm struggling. And now I'm going to go to therapy on top of that. And what does that mean? What are the connotations there? What have my family told me about therapy? What have I known about other people that have gone and, and so on and so forth? And then it can create this barrier where we hold ourselves off from getting the help and support that we could really thrive with because of that fear of what it means socially. Now, what I've actually seen, and the way that I practice, again, is looking at these symptoms. They're communicating. It's, and, and, and if we actually are, have an honest conversation about mental health, our bodies respond to stress in a way that that stress diathesis model where we are going to go into fight, flight, or freeze, so much so that it is estimated three-fourths of the world's population will have a clinically significant experience of depression mm. or anxiety at some point in life mm. because things don't go our way. We don't have control over things. Right. And so when we start thinking about that, depression or anxiety at some point in life means, okay, your brain's working like 75% of other people. But we're now culturally where a bunch of people are saying, yeah, but there's things like therapy that can help, but I can't do that because what does that mean mm-hmm. for me socially? And what that does is it, it isolates people even further, gives them less sense of control, can escalate those feelings. And then once you get people that actually engage and start going through it and they realize like, hey, this isn't about weakness. This isn't about like, hey, there's something necessarily mm-hmm. wrong. It's just how do I go ahead and get the right skills and tools and how do I go ahead and and navigate this and learn more about myself? It fundamentally changes things. Uh, and I, can I just yep, add on yep. to this? Because um, one of the things that I, I had an acquaintance or a friend um, who told me back in the day, uh, it's about you know this whole tough guy thing. He was, you want to be a tough guy? Look yourself in the mirror and figure yourself out. Go there. You want to, you know, because everybody says yeah. oh, you're not tough if you go to, you, you go to therapy. And he told me, he's like, listen, you want to be a tough guy? You look yourself in the mirror and you go inward, then you're tough and then we'll talk. And so that was, that, that's what I needed at yes. that time to get there. But it was, Hey, y- y- you can be a tough guy going inward. You can. And that's the thing is like, you are digging in and really looking at our lives. And most of the time we try to avoid that. 
there is, we have kind of what's called a self-serving bias. So if somebody's out walking and they stumble and, and whatnot, you see that you're like, wow, that person's clumsy. If we're walking and we stumble, it's, oh, there's a crack in the floor. Like, <laughs> you know, there's all these reasons about why it's not me. It's, you know, the situations around it. We have this, most of us have it fairly strongly where we can go ahead and say, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm normal. I'm fine. I'm better than average. I'm da, 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 da. These things, which our brains do because we need to feel confident to go into the world and whatnot. And, and so to stop and pause and say, okay, I'm going to dig into looking at myself and recognize that maybe, you know, I could work on my balance or stuff like it it takes time, it takes energy and it takes courage because we sometimes find that we don't necessarily like the way that we've engaged in life or that we haven't allowed ourselves to have the positive relationships that we want or that we spent time pursuing mastery. And so I'm going to explain that term mastery real quick in psychology, especially in psychodynamic. What happens is when we come up to a struggle, a situation that we feel doesn't go in our favor, that ends poorly, or that you know we you know a bad relationship with a parent, or you know a situation where you're trying to get into a club that you're rejected from, or whatnot, we go through this idea of mastery of saying how can I either recreate that situation and master it, or find a proxy of it, or then put others through a similar situation so I can show that I'm not the only one that struggles there. Hmm. And so we, we can start pursuing this psychologically kind of with those jump conclusions. And through that, we can find out like, hey, I've been repeating those same behaviors that I didn't, that were done to me that I didn't want to do, you know, that I struggled with and that were really hurtful. But by gaining awareness of it, now I can stop that cycle. And that takes courage and that takes accountability to say, okay, I'm going to look at myself. I'm going to recognize that. I'm going to go ahead and change that. It's not easy. And... Mm-hmm. Going back to, um, I had a thought about about stigma, um, and I don't think there's an easy answer, and certainly isn't going to happen overnight. But in your opinion, um, you know, from a societal standpoint, what, what do we do? What's the answer to shift the narrative about mental health? Yeah, and, yeah. You what, know, what, what, what's the answer? Yeah, we can look at this from so many theoretical points of view of it, whether it's okay, we just need to change the term because mental health has been associated here and now we're, we're associating it and like this is where you sometimes see things come out where they just, they shift the name, they yeah. shift the brand and suddenly everybody's like, oh, that, yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly it. Um, but the reality is, is that it's, it's conversations. It's doing exactly what the two of you are doing where you're having people talk about it, people be vulnerable and open and say, let's, let's actually take the veneer off and let's show what's real. Let's show, you know, the, the reality is, is that People struggle. People want to live an engaging, happy life or, you know, a meaningful life, I should say, because happy is, you know, sometimes that becomes the the thing that we all chase mm-hmm. when really this is kind of one of those shocking things. It's like, what's the most common emotion? And you ask people and some, oh, everybody else is happy and I'm not. And it's like, no, the most common emotion is euthymic. And people are like, what is that? And it's, it's like, things are okay. It could be better, it could be worse, but I'm yeah. all right. And that's the thing is like when we go back to the emotions as senses that are helping us sensory data that helps navigate space, we recognize that happiness and joy are great. We can have contentment and all that. And they're giving us cues, but it's not our base point. 
our base point is that, hey, I'm okay, things are good. I'm, you know, kind of content or kind of everything's all right. And then when something good happens, happiness happens, joy happens. And that lets me know, hey, I'm moving in the right direction. If I constantly head that, it loses its salience, it loses its importance, and suddenly doesn't feel that special anymore. I get habituated to it. And it's just like, okay, well, there's that feeling again, and it's not that big. So I have to chase something bigger that's going to make me more happy, that's going to make me more joyful. And we get stuck in that pursuit of something that's always more, more, more. And it's because we're not accepting that baseline is like, hey, I'm okay. Yeah, that's that might tie into our next question. Then. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so social media, right, and, yep. and cell phones and addiction and fear of missing out and all that other stuff. And we deal with this on a daily basis and the jobs that we do and you probably and, and, and what you're doing. And so number one is, I guess we want to ask you, do you stay up to date and uh, with the latest social media platforms and maybe what platforms are you on? Who do you follow? And then I want to talk about the addiction piece of it because it's something that um, I, it, it scares us. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really does. And it's not just kids, it's adults as well too because we you can look on your phone now and you can see, oh my gosh, someone spent 10, 11, 12, 14 hours on their phone. So anyway, so what 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 social media platforms are you on? Are you staying up to date? Who do you follow? That kind of stuff. You know, I, I've got some of the platforms, like the common ones, like Facebook, Instagram, stuff like that, but I, I don't actually use them that often. Yeah, and right. it's it's one of those things where I like to keep a pulse on like what's going on and what people are using, but... At the same time, I, I don't want to get sucked into it. Yeah. There's there's a lot of things that, um, you know, I try to try to do instead: books to read, podcasts to listen to, things like that. Where I, I, you know, but I recognize the appeal of social media, and I recognize the appeal of that instant gratification because we all have this innate desire to want to be not all of us, but most of us to want to be accepted by the group, and so what things like Facebook and Instagram and things that have like functionality does is that gives you immediate external validation. Am I doing the right thing? Do people like this about me? Do they like this about me? And think about historically, you would have to go through and kind of try to read social cues. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What's my interpretation? Did they nod? Did they smile? Mm-hmm. Did they like it? Did they, you know, did they walk closer? Did they walk away? Did they like all these subtle things? Now it's as simple as like, I'm having people vote. (laughs) (laughs) It takes the ambiguity out of it because you're like, it's a like. And you're not sitting there thinking like, okay, is it a kind of like? Is it a super like? Is it like, you know. That's coming next. (laughs) It is coming next. (laughs) But, you know, it, it reminds me of people want to have some type of confirmation that they're accepted socially. But then what it does is it can create this sense of I've got to go ahead and top the next. And so when we go back to the reticular activating system, the RAS, what happens is we have, um, we, 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 we take in all of this information and our brain filters out about 80% of it. And what it tends to do, if we think of the standard distribution bell curve, you know, and whatnot, you've got the 10% that's really salient on the, on the positive end and 10% that's really salient on the negative. We start looking, we automatically start dichotomizing and the stuff in the middle, we stop paying as close to attention, uh, as close of attention to. So think about the news for a moment. Now, technically, the news is supposed to be reporting everything that's going on and, and all that. But I'm going to turn myself in. I love dogs and I love everything else. But if I all of a sudden see a news story where somebody's like, 
this person got a dog and, you know, <laughs> and then they're doing a car wash and stuff like that. I'm thinking like, wow, it's a slow news day. <laughs> but, you know, because it's that 80%. It's, it's yeah. what's expected. It's not out of the norm. It's not grabbing my attention. So my brain is saying you can ignore that. So you start getting the 24-hour news cycle. And what happens is that if everything becomes habituated, you become used to it, you start ignoring it. You don't pay attention to it. So what happens? Well, you've got to escalate it. It's got to be more of a spectacle. It's got to be either really good or really negative. And those are the things that grab people's attention. Mm -hmm. And then you see this brought down on a microcosm into social media. I've got to present either the best or the worst in order to grab attention because otherwise there's so much noise out there. It just becomes the norm. You're like, okay, yeah, no big deal. And so people start chasing that because now this idea that I can get immediate social validation, it's, it's, it's there because people vote now, but in order to grab the attention, I've got to go ahead and escalate. I've got to escalate on either side. Either I've got to put something out there more extreme that people are going to be shocked and respond to or more like perfect than anybody can imagine and people are going to go ahead and validate this. And it leads to this pursuit often where people are saying, I, I just want to be recognized that I matter, but I need to create more intense versions of myself in order to grab the attention because otherwise you're fighting against all the other noise out there and you just go back into the sea of, yep, this is just another one of those posts. And so that addictive part of it is that pursuit of saying, I want to know that I exist, that I'm important, that I matter. But the message is, in order to do that, I have to present in a way that might not even match who I really am or right. what my real experience is. It creates this identity disconnect. Totally. I totally yeah. see that. So it makes complicated. So, it's complicated and it makes a lot of sense. What would you say are some, uh, you know, advice or things you would say to uh, somebody that may be addicted or wanting to um, start to get away from this? Because we know, um, based on the stuff that, you know, we've read, we've seen and all that stuff, the algorithms on social media, like you're saying, creating those habits, conditioning your brains, all that other stuff. What would you, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who maybe wants to or they've got a they've got a one of their kids that's addicted to it. What do you what would you say to that? I would say that the response that most people will have is, oh, I just gotta cut it out. I just gotta stop it. Yep. And it's 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 really not getting at the core of what's going on. So you can listen to this and dig down a little deeper. What is the thing that's missing out? Is it that validation? Is it that I feel a part of something? Is it I have a social connection? Is it I have something to do? I need something, you know, that I can control or distract myself. I'm stressed and I need a mind break for a moment. Like, what am I actually using social media or my phone for? for yeah. And then by that, you can start addressing, okay, so then what are other ways of getting towards that while also then limiting it? And then the third thing I would say is demystifying social media. Make sure people, if, if you're looking at it, you're pursuing this, understanding like, hey, we have this tendency we are going to try to pursue it. We're going to try to escalate it because we want attention and we're not. You explain it. And it's not about like, oh, there's something wrong with you that you're you're doing this. It's like, no, everybody's kind of primed to do this. And these algorithms are smart and they get people engaged. And we have a bunch of people thinking about how do we get you more engaged? And now they're starting to use, you know, 
they're taking these same ideas and technology and saying, okay, how can we use them in other positive ways like health and, mm-hmm, and whatnot? Yeah. But the danger there even becomes it can get out of control where it becomes a competition. I'm more healthy than you. I'm more pushing myself. <laughs> and then y- you lose that organic sense of how do I feel connected and supported? So it's not as simple as just saying absolutely cut it all out. And it's not as simple as saying let it run wild. It's really saying we need to have a deeper conversation and thought about what is it trying to accomplish? What are other avenues to get that? If it is, I need to feel connected to my friends. Mm -hmm. How do we build meaningful connections in a way that doesn't then also go off of technology platform that is just making me feel also competitive or inadequate half the time too? How do we go ahead and and, and find other ways to connect? Such a huge topic. It is. I mean, it... I don't know about for you, Jason, but for me, it it, it overwhelms me. It does. Mm-hmm. It it seems it's it's one of those problems that's so large. You're like, God, where do you even start? Mm-hmm. Like when we see you know kids at school and how, how to start those conversations and and um, yeah, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. But I sure. think it goes back to what we're you know what we're all talking about is going inward and figuring yeah. out how you're gonna how do you want to use it, how you're gonna use it, just that awareness piece. But yeah, yeah. I, but go ahead. I would just say, and the one thing with that too, is thinking about your interpretation of why somebody else is using it as a parent thinking, okay, this is why I think my mm-hmm. child is using it. Maybe completely different mm-hmm. than what the child is actually using it for or mm-hmm. thinking about. Mm-hmm. And that's where we, um, we have to understand that our own lens influences how we perceive other people's behavior. And if we're trying to help somebody else dig in and, and understand themselves, we can't project our stories onto them and expect that to have the same meaning or relevance to them. We have to listen to where they're at in their stories. And even if they don't necessarily have the right words for it, because kids yeah. don't always know exactly what it is that they're trying to communicate, it's saying, okay, can we invest the time to have those conversations? Can we listen openly to try to figure out what it is? And then how do we create an environment where it's safe to, to share that and then say, okay, how do we then take the next steps? Yeah, that's good perspective. Um, I'm going to shift just a little bit here. And when I ask about, uh, we always like talking to our guests um, about people that have impacted them in a positive way. Um, obviously, Jason and I being in education, um, you know, we both can speak to role models that we've had over the years. And, and uh, so I'm just curious, role models, uh, mentors, who comes to mind? Yeah, so I um, I have been very fortunate to have a handful of, of very good mentors at different times in my life. Um, there, there was um, a when I was in my early twenties and kind of going through the finance part. There was a uh, a friend of mine that I was introduced to. His name was Barry. He was an older gentleman um, who was a friend of my dad's cousin. It was some you know random connection that. I met and I explained what I was looking for in psychology and how I wanted to get into it. And Barry, you know, and at the time I was uh, in finance and and getting back into school and, and whatnot. And he had gone through um, an experimental psychology program and was just fantastic at saying, okay, I'm going to put together reading lists. Here are like the must read books that you need to, to go through if you really want to dive into psychology. And it was phenomenal because it gave me something to consume and it was stuff that I wouldn't normally think to to kind of explore. And then for a while with, with Barry and then a, a group of my friends, we started this group um, 
we called it at the time a, a belief group where mm-hmm. the goal was to gather different people in different, um, you know, either academic studies or, you know, just different places in life and just a range of people, bring them together and have topics that we were going to talk about. Like, what do you believe about this? And the goal was you, you're not there to change anybody else's mind. Your goal is not like I'm going to convince somebody that I'm right and they're wrong. It was simply just to share what you believed and then let other people hear it so that you can think of other people's perspectives. And so he helped me kind of organize some of these and we would have some of the most phenomenal conversations where you get these people, you talk about a topic and it was just, this is what I believe, this is what I think about it. And then again, like the rule was nobody attacks it, nobody tries to We need more of that right now. Oh, it was phenomenal because it was such a good experience just to learn how to sit and be curious about Mm -hmm. other people and their perspectives and not assume that you have the right answer, but just, you know, having those discussions. And I think that really helped set me up when I started thinking about my clinical work, like being able to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to be here present for this person. And I'm going to think about, you know, you can't help but think about your own perspective of things, but I need to get inside their story and listen to them. That's a skill. It's a muscle that you have to build. We don't we don't start there. And so experiences like that where you really try to hold off saying, okay, my goal is just to listen and just to be curious and just to try to understand where they're coming from. Um, yeah, just a wonderful experience. That's very cool. Love it. I like that. Um, let's uh, go on. I'm going to kind of tie these together here because I think they do uh, mirror, but you know, so much of the conversations that we can have with others is, and we've seen this over the last few years, is just people are burning out. Mm-hmm. People are tired. And, 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 you know, I we can speak in the education field. There's a lot of teachers. There's a lot of principals, cooks, custodians, assistants, paras, whatever you name it in education. They're tired. They're burnt out. But that, but we also know that that's happening in other fields too. And, and so how could having like a mental... Uh, just a th- maybe not even because you use the word mental, but how the therapist, how could you, how could having a therapist help somebody who is burning out? And then maybe to tie into that, the second part of that question will be if somebody's just kind of dipping their toes into this whole mental health thing, what are some things that you'd recommend if it's podcast, books, whatever? Yeah. Um, so when we start thinking about burnout, there's, there's a couple of different things that come to mind. One is we've got either roles that are just inherently stressful. And then the second is that we also then potentially have systems that aren't set up to facilitate or support what's needed due to any type of you know financial constraints or anything like that to help support the individuals within it to provide adequate you know, resources and whatnot. And we've, we've got to think about those two separate areas because you can have an individual that's burnt out within a system or you can have a system where everybody's starting to have burnout. Mm-hmm. And when we start thinking about those, we have to recognize that we do have that tendency to want to feel a part of a group. Misery loves miserable company. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And it, mm. the, the term, it, you know, a lot of people think misery loves company. No, it's misery loves miserable company. We want other people to feel like we do because it validates our experience. Mm-hmm. Our brains tend to 
respond towards negative events more than positives because we want to avoid that because it's more important to say, hey, stay away from that so I can keep going rather than, you know, necessarily say, okay, I'm going to balance it and think about all the good and the positive and whatnot. And there's a thing called trait state memory. So if I'm in a bad mood, my brain is going to be able to access other memories I made and encoded while I was in a bad mood a lot easier than happy ones. And the reason being is because my brain is convinced that there was a solution. If I was sad before and I got out of it, there's a solution there. So I'm not going to waste my time thinking about happy memories, which is great. I'll get there when I get there. But I'm going to look for the solution in all the past sad memories. You see this when couples get into arguments and they're like, you never do this. And all of a sudden they have every single exactly experience that has ever happened that they can call <laughs> and like recall is like amazing. Uh. Um, but it's it's not balanced. And so when we get a work environment situation where there's an emphasis on the negative, it can quickly snowball. And now all of a sudden the team is all focused on the negative because all of those experiences, all of those memories come to mind, all of those examples that reinforce that and then we look for others to share to say okay it's not just me I'm not the only one who's struggling here and when that happens we can get into a quick environment that the whole morale goes down and burnout for everybody goes up so when you start thinking about therapy what you're doing is you're you're taking that conversation out of I'm going to immediately have it with all my coworkers or I'm going to go home and talk about how horrible things are and everything else and I'm, I'm bringing it into another environment that's contained and I can talk about it. I don't have to pretend I'm not feeling it. I can address it. And sometimes appropriately, I can be challenged to say, okay, then what else is working? And this person isn't saying, I'm also doing that same job with you. I'm your coworker. And oh, yes, let's both complain about the boss together and all this other stuff. Like they're there to give you this outside perspective. And also to say, okay, then how do we also change our focus so that we also have room for the other things we enjoy and want to do in life and expand it? And then it gives us more of a sense of balance that then allows us to feel more, to have more mind space to be recharged and think about building resilience and think about things and objectively look at it. Is it the system? Is it this is not a good place for me or this is not a good match for my skill set or what I need in my life at this point? Or is it that I just, I need to bring more resilience coping and, and support to myself and take a break from, from that? Um, and so therapy can can really help with that. It gives you that external place to process it. I love it. How about like uh, just going then to somebody dipping their toes into this whole thing that, you know, they're new to this, but do you have any like uh, books or podcasts or people or apps that you would share with somebody? There's a, a classic older book that uh, it's out there. It's called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert <laughs> Zabalski. Okay. And what it does is it talks about the stress diathesis model, that fight, flight, or freeze, and our response to stress. And it really normalizes that. It, and it, the reason I think that that's important is because once we start realizing that our response with feeling stress or anxiety or depression is normal, it's a physiological-based response. It's not because, oh, I'm not strong enough or I'm weak or anything like that. It's just I'm reacting to a stressful situation and environment. It opens the door to say, okay, if that's the case, then all I need is the resources to help address it. And that's a lot less scary than thinking, okay, what does this mean about me? What does this mean about everything else? What do I have to get into? It demystifies that. Another thing, uh, another book that's out there, it takes more of a behavioralist approach rather than a psychodynamic, which looks at the, the kind of the deeper things. But if you're just looking to start saying, how do I make small changes in my life? Uh, BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits 
mm-hmm. talks about how do you take larger things, break them down into smaller steps that feel more manageable. Now, this is a good way to start taking steps towards behavior change. I do recommend taking that other step and saying, and then how do you dig deeper to say, okay, why am I having those patterns in the first place? But to get the, the you know, your toe in the water and start moving, it's a really good place to start. Love it. Fantastic. This leads into the, to the final question. We're going to wrap this up. Um, we always, we always ask this as the last question. What is one tangible thing that someone that's listening, that is looking to improve their life in some capacity related to their overall health and wellness, their mental health, their um, emotional wellness, what is one thing that they could start tomorrow that they could focus on? Find something you enjoy. It's all about, like, find your passion. Find something that's creative, find something that you are excited about. And the thing is, is that once we start finding something that we enjoy, we get hope. Hope is such a big factor in overall mental health and wellness of saying, okay, once I believe in something, I'm passionate, I'm excited about it, I know I can then take that feeling and I can expand it to other areas. And it gives me that motivation to keep going. And so looking for something that you're excited about, that you're invested in, that you're passionate about, and finding it can be such a huge thing. And it doesn't have to be like life-changing, ah, like this is... You know, the, you know, like the, the, the big thing, it could be something as simple as, you know, you could start with, I really like my cup of coffee. Well, okay. Okay. And then dig deeper. Well, what is that? Well, cause I take the time to, to reflect on myself. Great. How do you give yourself a little bit more time to reflect on yourself? Well, I'd stretch my coffee from five to minutes, 10 minutes. Perfect. Small changes like that. And then you can start looking at like what your emotions are telling you. And finding what are those things that give you that passion, that joy, so you can keep moving forward and finding things that bring that overall sense of wellness. That's great. I love it. Okay. Okay. Well, let's I tell close you what, her out. Yeah, let's close it up. Uh, Michael, I can't, uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, once again, I'm feeling extremely selfish <laughs> that I was able to be here and experience this and, and take in all this great information. Um, I, I feel like I am just benefiting from, from this um, conversation um, just as much as I know the listeners are going to. So um, sincerely, genuinely appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to sit down with us um, and share your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge. Um, I know our listeners are going to mm-hmm. benefit. Well, and thank you so much for having me and for doing this. Because as I mentioned before, and I think has been a theme here, is these types of conversations and having people talk about it do so much good. And so thank you both for having me and for just having this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would just, gratitude's coming to me. I'm very grateful for you and grateful for the time and the energy that we got to share here today. And um, excited for the listeners to... Um, Again, wherever they're at in their journey, um, take something from that and continue moving. I'm very excited. So thanks again, Michael, for hanging out with the two principals today. And as we continue on this journey, one step at a time, one conversation at a time. And as we wrap up today's episode, we'd love for you to follow, subscribe, and rate, review our podcast wherever you listen. We are grateful for your support. As always, please follow us on all of our social media accounts at Two Principles. You can find us on the web at twoprinciples.com. Questions for Kevin or myself, email us at twoprinciplespodcast at gmail.com. 
Hey, as always, thanks for raising your frequency today and looking inward, wishing you peace and happiness on your journey. And remember, a better you makes for a better today. It starts with you. Until next time, get out of your head and into your heart.